Alright, welcome everybody. We're going over Avatar The Way of Water. I feel like there has been plenty of time for everybody to see this amazing movie, for us to give it a real in-depth analysis and discussion. And as always, spoilers ahead if you have not seen it. I don't know what you're doing with your life, but definitely go and see this movie. Now, movie opens, we rejoin Jake Sully and his wife, Natiri, back on the moon of Pandora. They have a family and some cutaway scenes, and uh, we get some phenomenal world building along the way in the first third of the movie. And looking back on the first Avatar and comparing it to the new one in terms of you know, what they can do with CGI, establishing shots, how everything is absolutely beautiful and, and it stays in focus the entire time for each shot. It is an understatement to say that the first movie was really far ahead of its time and the second movie really supports it. It, it galvanizes that fact, if anything. Because, for the most part, they look like they were released, I mean, just a few years apart, maybe. Not 13 years <laughs> apart. Um, that's that's how incredible the first movie was in, in terms of the advancements in CGI and motion capture. It was, I mean, it had been done before, but not to that scale. And it's not just that the CGI is impressive, which it very much is, um, but the way that the world of Pandora itself moves in response to the other elements that are that are inhabiting it, the, the Na'vi, the humans, the animals, it, I mean, the grass moves how grass moves normally moves out it, like in our world <laughs> um, how the water reflects and interacts with things in and around it the the animals everything is perfectly in sync with every other element and in the realm of computer graphics and and building almost everything in sequence it really is a masterpiece to say the least I, I, the, the amount of things that had to be done for each and every shot, the motion capture with the actors, the, the voiceover dubbing, the shot cuts, the CGI layers, keeping everything in focus, all of that and more has to be stacked on top of each other for a three-hour feature film. And after seeing it all seamlessly work together, it's kind of no wonder that the movie took so long to make. Now, director James Cameron also did some wildly inventive stuff to create as much realism in a movie where almost everything is mostly made up of CGI elements. Um, he built this enormous diving pool to shoot underwater motion capture that we, that, I mean, that took about half of the movie. Half of the movie's overall screen time is spent underwater. Now, this is remarkable for the simple fact that 
no one had ever done underwater motion capture before. And to me, this feels very familiar to what uh, George Lucas was doing with Star Wars, uh, inventing new technologies and methods by which to create what the imagination could hold. It's also kind of reminiscent of um, Kubrick, because Kubrick was infamous for doing things over and over and over. Um, like, I, I think it's it's famously documented that he did one shot 127 times. I think in The Shining? I can't remember which movie it was, but he did a shot 127 times to get it right. To, to make sure that that shot was as perfect as it was going to be. That's dedication. And between those two and, and Spielberg and Scorsese, all these other great filmmakers, I mean, this is how filmmaking was born. What, what, what it, it's what led to the birth of Pixar Studios. Right? Pixar was a program that got invented during the time of, I think, Return of the Jedi. It was either Return of the Jedi or Empire Strikes Back, but it was a program before it was a studio. And it was a studio that was sold kind of after the fact of Star Wars, but, I, I mean, modern filmmaking came about. Um, so certainly everything up into uh, the 70s was um, very much uh, a different era of film, right? I mean, the, the director that comes to prominence in my mind is uh, Roman Polanski. Um, I mean, he, he was making films in the 70s, of course, but uh, I mean, filmmakers like him to me paved the way for what could be and then what we got from the late 70s the 80s and 90s I mean everything from like Jurassic Park um, Star Wars of course all of that really pushed the boundaries in terms of how we were limited in our capacity to tell stories on film and the Avatar series seems to be a next big chapter in the telling of how we tell stories on film. And it's it's incredible to know that, to know that you're kind of witnessing film history as it's happening, right? I, I mean, there's thousands, thousands of movies released every year there's maybe a handful that will stand out among all of those thousands uh, every year, right? But every now and then, among that handful, there will be... There will be select few that are true gems among gems. And I, I think time will tell that the Avatar franchise is one of those gems.
and it's due to the dedication that Cameron has to these Avatar movies. I mean, it's it's just staggering. And it's no wonder that this is coming from the guy behind movies like Titanic, the Terminator movies, uh, Aliens, Last Action Hero, Alita Battle Angel, which was, I think, a highly underrated movie, in my most humble opinion. Um, keeping in mind, of course, how long it takes to create each shot and transition and how memorable and, and keystone each of his other franchises are, I think it's safe to say that Cameron is one of those directors that people really get excited about whenever it comes out that he's directing a movie. And his track record proves it, based on how popular all his previous work has been. Now, with The Way of Water, we get a lot of overlaying elements. Right? They, they layer very nicely. They work with each other instead of pulling from one another. Uh, and this is not just from a technical standpoint, but it's also from a story standpoint, uh, character development. Um, it is a sequel, so we, we get references and, and callbacks to the previous film without it being too overwhelming. Uh, I know a lot of critics and hardliners will say that the movie is mostly a retread of the first one, that it's an environmentalist film, it's a retelling of Dances with Wolves and Pocahontas, uh, it even has the same villain as the first movie. And if that's confusing to you at first glance, it is. <laughs> but at the beginning, they, they explain that uh, just in case... Colonel Quaritch dies in his attack on the Navi stronghold. His memories and personality have been copied and downloaded to be imprinted on an Avatar body. This was done to preserve the kind of hard asses that the company felt like was their best bet in securing their assets on Pandora. And after watching the movie and Going back and watching the first one, I can very much understand where the critics are coming from. I mean, a lot of it is the same, right? Right down to Jake Sully and his family being outsiders and uh, their journey within a new tribe, trying to be accepted and welcomed members uh, in order to escape Colonel Quaritch and his new Avatar hit squad. <laughs> um, Oh, he, he also has a whole bunch of soldiers that are um, grown and imprinted the same way he was. Um, and though I, I think while Way of Water does have many similarities, I think it does that rhyming that Lucas was talking about with his Star Wars interviews. Um, and it rhymes while it becomes something different. I mean, Jake Sully trains and leads the Navi, Navi forest tribe he's in, in this American military guerrilla-style warfare fashion uh, against the humans who have returned to Pandora to colonize and mine rich resources. Uh, and he's very successful until the colonel returns and starts hunting him and his family. 
And here we're introduced to one of the biggest overlaying narratives. Uh, it's one that Lucas also made a foundation of his movies. Um, the ties, strengths, and weaknesses of family. It's a, it's a hugely important factor uh, in this movie, right? Now, in the first movie, it was Natiri and her tribe accepting Jake as part of their family uh, and those struggles. Um, it was Jake honoring his dead brother's memory as well as his struggle with accepting an alien race as a new family uh, instead of the one he was born into. Now, in the way of water, we get Jake and Natiri having a big family with lots of kids, even kind of pseudo-adopting a human boy named Spider, who grows up with Jake's kids, who just happens to be the bastard son of Colonel Quaritch. Now, this is a clear evolution from the first film. We're dealing with more complex family dynamics, especially at the end of the movie. Uh, Jake's oldest son gets killed by Quaritch. Quaritch gets saved by his estranged son Spider after um, exchanging Spider's life for the life of Natiri's daughter. Um, and it's that is showing that Spider and Quaritch have this grown compassion for one another. Uh, it's a bond that seemed impossible at the beginning of the movie. Um, these were two characters that wanted nothing to do with one another. Uh, Spider actually growing up to hate who his father is and what he had done. Justifiably so. <laughs> um, but by the end of the film, we see this grand shift in dynamics between these two characters. As Spider teaches his father how to speak the Navi language better, uh, he acts as a translator and an intermediary with the Navi for his soldiers. He even watches with pride and admiration as Quaritch fights and tames a wild Ikron. Now, it's, it's relationships like this with authentic character development that really justifies the movie being three hours long because it needed to be three hours long. I mean, if these kinds of things were rushed, we would feel it if if just all of a sudden they had this compassion for one another we would be very confused You'd be like well where, where did that come from right but we get to see why it's there we get to see how it grew uh, another largely important part of this movie um, of course is the CGI involved, but it's it's more than one might initially think. Um, reason being that all of the returning cast from the previous film are a bit older now, um, and after watching some interviews with the likes of Sam Worthington, Sigourney Weaver, and Stephen Lang, it kind of shows. Uh, I mean, Stephen Lang was... He was getting long on the tooth whenever they did the first film. Now, yeah, they they needed to make him a motion capture CGI character for sure. Um, it, it, I mean, 
The Way of Water is set to be about 15 to 18 years after the first movie, so you could justify the return cast being that much older. But this does generate a good conversation as to whether or not the CGI used to create these characters and character layers to, you know, make them not seem as old as their actors should, um, should that mask their age or not? Uh, whether the 12 years between the movies should also inform the age of the characters in their appearance as well, or if we should see them um, as fantastical and as youthful as we had them in the first movie. Now, I, I would applaud the realism of the former, but seeing how much symbolism and, and flex of realism this massive sci-fi endeavor has embedded throughout it, I'm perfectly happy with the latter way of thinking. Leaving the characters looking to be young and beautiful heroes that they were in the first film. Um, and from what little I've heard of the next movie, which will have the Sully family move to where there are fire Navi people instead of water or tree Navi people, this series is becoming bionicle. If, if you grew up with Bionicles like I did, there, there was a Bionicle series. I don't think it was... Well, it might have been on TV somewhere, I don't know. But it had like a whole bunch of direct-to-DVD movies and, and shows and whatnot. But yeah, this is kind of becoming Bionicle. Or the other Avatar, The Last Airbender, where you have... Uh, Earth tribe, a water tribe, a fire tribe. Um, yeah, we're we're gonna have an air tribe for the for the fourth movie. Um, <laughs> I I would I would love to see that. That would be, oh my god, that would be a comparison to end all comparisons. Avatar: The Last Airbender and uh, James Cameron's Avatar. That would be nuts. But. If I had to guess, I'd say that the third movie will be much closer in time to the second. Uh, it, it might be right after. It might be, you know, a couple months later. Um, so we'll have our pro tags all be relatively the same age. Maybe they'll be a bit older looking, but in a mature way. Uh, a way that's meant to convey just how much they've grown from their struggles and their relationships rather than just having aged. Um, and it, I mean, another thing that's practically kind of hard is how do you, how do you age a, a blue eight foot tall cat person? <laughs> right. I, I mean, we had elder Navi in the first movie and aside from their mannerisms and their voice and the way they moved, you couldn't really tell that they were the elders very well. They, they don't have the same distinctive elderly features that humans have, which is what we're used to. So I guess you could kind of get away with explaining it that way, that we just can't tell how old they are because they're a different species 
So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think they'll be fine. I, I don't foresee any problems with that. I do think it is worth noting that something that this movie has experienced that I don't think that the first movie got in any capacity, uh, and I really rolled my eyes uh, at this, and and it, this movie got some backlash by being touted as some white savior complex movie where the Navi are the noble savages and they're only victorious and able to defeat the invaders because of the white man hero. This is odd for me for for several reasons. Uh, Chief being that the main reason, especially for the fights in this movie, um, the Navi keep beating the mess out of the Marines um, and it's mostly Natiri, not Jake. Natiri is an absolute beast in this movie. It, she's something to watch. I mean, she shows incredible skill and they make her graceful and ferocious. Um, all with bow, arrow, and knife against enemies with rifles and machine guns. I mean, they, they make her like the Navi equivalent to Rambo. It's something to see. Now, take let, let's remove Jake from all of the big battles uh, between the Navi and the humans. Could the Navi still win the engagements with the humans? Yeah. They, they could. They could 100% still win. But take out Natiri? There is little to no chance that the Navi are winning. Um, there's other deciding factors, but they're going to get decimated, I think. I mean, it's it's like removing Anakin Skywalker from the Clone Wars. The, the Republic just gets decimated without him. Or Obi-Wan Kenobi. Or Yoda. Or Windu. I mean take out any of these major players and their side just crumbles like a house of cards I mean matter of fact Jake tries to lead the Navi away from conflict and advocates peace and nonviolence with the water people Um, now Natiri nah son she is a hundred percent commando all pro-war and here for the routing of the vile invaders uh, and by proxy her kids are very much the same way um, granted they're a big reason that the oh what are, what are they called the the, the metakaya I think so uh, they're a big reason why the metakaya go to war with Quaritch and the marines in the first place but then the the Sully kids are all hands on deck when it comes to trading blows and striking against the human invaders. They're eager for it. They're they're 100% let's go get them, right? Especially his two sons. Um, and that kind of makes this whole 
white savior thing weird to me because it's a clash of species it's it's a clash of cultures not color ironically enough as you have blue people fighting white people um but the the navi are supposed to be up in those critics eyes the navi are supposed to be placeholder for Native Americans and indigenous peoples. Something I do think is kind of eye-roll worthy because we're, we're talking about a science fiction fantasy film. Why wouldn't a nature communing people evolve culturally much the same way Native Americans and indigenous people did? And that that doesn't make them the same thing by far, especially if you look at the movie as what it's supposed to be, a science fiction, environmental, message-laden, family-centric film with philosophical tendencies leaning towards ideas of unity, communing with nature, and what a family is. And what a person and their community are willing to do in order to survive. I mean, another big reason why the whole white savior argument is kind of absurd to me is that Jake has, in every sense, fully assimilated into the culture and and people of the Navi, while, of course, bringing what he knows to help them in times of crisis against Earth's second invasion of Pandora. Now, he has quite literally become one of the quote-unquote people um, his neuropathways his personality his soul being transferred fully into his Navi avatar via Ewa um, and that was during the final moments of the first movie um, he has dedicated himself in every way to a foreign people he, he gave his literal soul to them in exchange for being able to be with the woman that he fell in love with. He, he did become a leader among the Navi, but his leadership is almost immediately given up when the, within the first third of the movie. And he, he submits himself to a, to a foreign chief. He lets himself be led instead of being a leader. Now, he leads alongside the chief and the chief's wife to go rescue their kids, but they, I mean, they become friends and, and allies and they respect one another, but he is very deferent for a majority of this film. Um, and that, to me, strikes directly against this whole white savior complex bashing garnered by the way of water what kind of messianic figure gives up their leader position at all in almost every instance it actually aids in leading them to their downfall Anakin Skywalker being chief among the examples that come to mind where he had an opportunity that Padme gives him to let Obi-Wan help him come back to the light to be with her, to stop Darth Sidious. He is the chosen one of prophecy. 
destined to decide the fate of the galaxy, and he chooses power and position over his loved ones and his true goals. Jake Sully in Avatar does the complete opposite. Instead of utilizing his power, uh, utilizing his position to destroy his enemies and wage full war and put Navi lives on the line, put his family's lives on the line, risk everything, take control, he takes his family, his, his whole reason for being, and he moves them across the ocean to a place where his enemies would not think to look for them. He is sacrificing power without a second thought in order to protect what he loves. What kind of evil white trickster are we talking about that does that? All in all, this, of course, is a wild and idiotic claim made against this movie, and it cheapens the real evil found in the world that dons this kind of motif and takes such action accordingly. That's that's why I hate it so much, is because eventually we have a boy who cried wolf situation, where it becomes really difficult to discern where the wolf is when time after time we have seen nothing but imposter and false flag and, and lie. I, but I digress. Now, <clears throat> the, the last big element that I enjoyed very much about this movie was the question of survival uh, and what it is and um, when it is not acceptable to merely achieve a, liv a livable environment, um, when it is acceptable to achieve a livable environment. Um, with the water Navi, they have this special relationship with this race of um, X-faced whale creatures who are, ha I mean, they're really intelligent. They can speak, they have, they have a language, they have this strict code of ethics, which is all centered around not doing harm or killing another living being. Um, now this presents a great quandary where survivability is concerned for our main and secondary cast of characters. Survivability was a big point for me in this film because it's a question that was asked very silently. Because it's stated by... <laughs> I call her General Carmela Soprano. Um, weird choice, by the way, choosing uh, Edie Falco as a futuristic general, but cool, I guess. It was nice to see that she's still around and doing stuff. Now, she says that the planet Earth is dying, and Pandora will be used as a colony planet, and that its settlement is now a means of humanity's survival. It is no longer a, manner, a, a matter of wanting to settle it or mine from it, but it is imperative that Pandora be tamed for the survival of the human race. It's a very brief situation, um, 
gone over at the beginning of the film, and it's not really addressed again, making it a very subtle aspect of the overall question of what one must be willing to do in order to survive. And the other half of it uh, is being answered by the Sully family and the um, Metkayina? I think that's how it is. In the Metkayina people uh, during their conflict resolution throughout most of the film. Do you eradicate a people who are doing what they must to survive by destroying part of your home? Uh, is it a matter of us or them? Is it, I mean, is cohabitation possible? These are all very complicated questions. I, they're near impossible to answer, uh, even with all of the facts and, uh, you, you know, it, everything kind of laid out. If, if you have a very clear ethic of what is right and what is wrong and what is allowable and what is, what is tolerable, um, what you're willing to sacrifice... It's it's hard, even if you have a clear picture of all of those all of those things. Um, is it ever acceptable to eradicate an entire people, a culture, a population? Um, and what's the other side of that scale? Uh, is it okay to kill one person in order to save untold billions? If 8 billion people on this planet were going to die, but killing one person would save all of them, could we do it ethically? Could, could we in good conscience say we can do that and it not be an evil act? And then you build your scale from there. If you say yes, where's the... Where's the tipping point? Where, where's the line that gets drawn? And is it fair to draw that line? Right? Uh, do you kill a hundred people then to save a billion? Do you kill a million people? Ten million? Hundred million to save a billion? It's... It's a moral quandary. It's an ethical dilemma that's been debated for... A good couple hundred years and um, I, I think both Avatar and The Way of Water are handling that kind of question appropriately it's it's an underlying question it is one of those smaller layers you t used to build a larger narrative um, and I think it's done appropriately because it's it's not shoved down our throat. It is given to us in a very small dose. Um, it's very manageable. It's very, um, it's it's very well done, and I, I thoroughly enjoy that. Now, all in all, I definitely give this movie a nine out of ten. I mean, the cinematography, the CGI, the character development, the the world building. It was all at peak performance, in my most humble opinion. And it definitely evolved 
the first movie from simply being a Dances with Wolves remake into something entirely its own. And I, for one, am greatly anticipating the rest of the Avatar franchise to come. That's all I had for today. Uh, Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Stick around for more Sci-Fi Unchained. But for now, live long and prosper, my friends. And may the Force be with us all.